Welcome to Board Game Famous, the board gaming podcast my brother and I started to give the attention that our parents did not give us. I mean, there's just so many of us. <laughs> I'm David, and I'm joined as always with my co-host, Michael. Howdy, howdy. Do we need to have a little banter section ever? I mean, that's every episode. <laughs> <laughs> every episode is just banter. <laughs> That's enough banter. <laughs> <laughs> we start, as always, with Michael. What you been playing? I got the wonderful experience of playing Dune for the first time. Yeah, you sent me pictures and I was jealous. What faction did you get to play? So I played the Fremen. Uh, just as a background, I have not seen the movie. I have not seen the miniseries. I have not read the books. So I had no idea who any of these factions were. This game about political intrigue, I had no idea who any of these factions were. Uh, the only background that I had were Matt Coppel's, uh Dune background videos that he did. Those were very nice. But I played the Fremen. They are the native people to the desert planet. Uh, and they were a lot of fun. We had enough people to play every single faction. So I tried to read Dune. And I didn't make it super far, but my only problem was, like a lot of sci-fi or fantasy things, they have uh, strange words or strange names. So you had the yeah. Bajesserit, you had the Fremen, you had the Kwisatzerak, and then like the main character's name is Paul, <laughs> <laughs> and his mom's name's like Jessica or something like that. Well, obviously, the Fremen are the free men. I didn't know that, actually. I, did, I didn't make it that far. You didn't make that connection? Well, I also haven't read it. But my favorite thing about the board game is each faction has their own special ability that breaks the game in a unique way. And it is thematic to what they are in the story. And so since the Fremen are, quote-unquote, native to this planet, they can move across the planet a lot faster and they don't have to pay to bring people onto this planet because they're already there. But, you know, like you have the Spacing Guild who gets half price for shipping people to this planet and makes money off of people shipping to the planet. You have uh, Harkonnen, which are the treacherous group. So they get extra cards for backstabbing people and for uh, having traitorous leaders and all that kind of stuff. And having that asymmetry really allows each person to play differently and you have to... Something you might do for one player, you wouldn't do for another player. And it was a lot of fun. I didn't end up winning, uh, but it did go the total max 10 rounds possible. And then the Spacing Guild won because they have a win condition of if there's no winner determined by the end of the game, they win because they managed to keep the planet in chaos. But I did come close a couple of times. Is it an area overall. control game where you're trying to control certain uh, cer certain spots on the map? Yeah, yeah. So there are five citadels and... You win by controlling three of them at the end of a round, or uh, if you're an alliance, you and your partner controlling four. Okay. Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. I just haven't had a chance to play it. That's on my, it's on my list to play. Yeah, it was one of those we set we set aside an entire day. We decided the factions ahead of time so everyone could research strategy and their own specific rules. So whenever we showed up, we just clarified a couple things, and bam, just started playing. It was great. That's that's the way to play an event event game like that. You Absolutely. divvy out the factions. You tell each person, like, this is how you're going to play. You look up this faction. Mm -hmm. And then one person's in charge of setup. And a few rule clarifications before the game begins. 
That's what we always mm-hmm. do for TI4. It's like, all right, you guys watch these refresher videos. This is the faction you're playing. Any questions before we start? Yeah, and um, the morning of watched. Who's the name of the guy who did the Twilight Imperium video? Uh, RTFM. RTFM. Uh, yeah. What's his name? Is uh, Shea Parker. Shea Parker with RTFM uh, did an instructional video for it, which was super helpful. So I was able to watch that the morning of. That's good. So, David, what have you been playing? So, with my new board gaming table, we've been having uh, more people over playing games, but not too many people because COVID still. Only our group of 10 that were allowed to visit. And then uh, we had ComfyCon 2.0, where we played, we played Pandemic, we played Calico, we played Canvas, which is a really fun drafting game where it's a it's a small little puzzly drafting game that would be fine on its own but it's about creating works of art and the cards that you're drafting are translucent and you can layer them over each other to create these pictures that have really nothing to do with the points that you're scoring so you can either a focus on trying to get the most points or b trying to make the most beautiful pictures and it has, my, it has my favorite tie-breaking rule of any game. And the tie-break rule is the non-interested players judge your pieces of art, and they decide the winner. So you can't completely ignore the aesthetic portion of the game. So there is a chance you could win by making the prettiest painting. Yeah, yeah, there's a good chance you could win like that. It has come down to ties more often than I thought the game would. Um, and so it's a pretty light game, and it's become one of my quick introductory games to people. So if it's oh, if somebody's not really into gaming, but they want to play a game, it's like, all right, let me set up Canvas. It's super light, super quick. Uh, I think it's a maximum, you get a maximum of 14 turns, and your turns are super quick too. So it's super catching to the eye. People walking by always looking at, like, what is that? Not that I'm playing in uh, locations where people are walking by. <laughs> Yeah. But the last game I played leads me to my next segment, which is... The Road to the 100, where I try and play the top 100 games on BoardGameGeek as of August 21st. You played Marco Polo, or did we do that before the last quarter? Yeah, we played The Voyages of Marco Polo. Okay, time was... Yeah, so my only addition is The Voyages of Marco Polo. Uh, which we played together with our family. Yes, it was you, me, our brother Isaiah, and Nate. Who is also our brother. (laughs) (laughs) Our brothers, Isaiah and Nate. (laughs) You want to talk about this one first? Yeah, so it's a dice worker placement game where you also have a character who is exploring... The near and far east by it's a work yeah, it's a dice worker placement game where you're moving a guy across the near and far east from Venice all the way to Beijing and all kinds of lands in between. And just like Dude, this is another game that every character has their own special game breaking power. So what did you think of it? Like you said, I really like the asymmetrical powers that each faction gets. 
I would say character is a better description, not faction. You're a different historical character. Uh, it really changes the way that the that the game works for you. And I, I like that people play in different ways. It's a Euro game. It's You really have to think out every single turn for it to be effective. And I enjoyed it a lot, and I can see why it's in the top 100. I thought it was okay. I wasn't wowed by it. Uh, the biggest criticism I had heard of the game was it's too hard to travel in a game called The Voyages of Marco Polo. And I, I definitely agree with that. And I think, I, think that, I think that's a theme argument more than mechanics. Well, I think it comes down to the mechanics. Yeah. Where the, the gimmick of the game was you move, you move your little meeple guy who travels from Venice to Beijing to these new and distant lands, unlocking different locations for you. Well, it was so prohibitively expensive to travel, I didn't unlock that many locations. So I was just playing with the the basic locations that are provided at the that are yeah. available to everybody at the beginning of the game. And then, to me, it was just a place dice to get resources, place dice to trade in those resources for points. A, a pretty generic worker placement game, which is, and and since worker placement is one of my favorite mechanics. I didn't hate the game. Like, it was fine. But I, I, I can see why some people have a problem. I have yeah. heard uh, the, the sequel fixes those problems. The Voyages of Marco Polo 2, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, I hear it's easier to travel in that game and, and lay down your, lay down your uh, little huts, whatever they're called, the trading outposts. Yeah, well, one thing I like about the dice placement is um, I think it's a, a newer mechanic or worker dice placements that I've seen is the uh, the fact that the number of hips on your dice determines how powerful the action is when you place it. But when you when the place requires multiple dice to be placed, place. I think this is the first game that I played where if you play multiple dice at an action that requires it, you can only use the power of the die that has the least number of hips on it. And I thought that was an interesting. What I thought I was another, yeah, that, that's a good point. Another good interest, uh, another good mechanic. I thought that uh, this game had was many of the spaces weren't blocked off. You could mm-hmm. uh, you could go there if you're the first person to go there. Great, you get to do that action for free. Mm-hmm. But when you, if you're the second person or third person to go there, you have to pay the lowest power of your die to activate that location. Well, you don't want to pay a lot of money. So you want lower dice, but if you're playing your lower dice, you're getting a less you're getting a less powerful action. And I thought that mm. was an interesting mechanic, and that's I yeah. think that was probably the the part of the game I enjoyed the most. And like you can only go to each spot once uh, for each color die. So if I you, I kept there forgetting were, that. So if you have bonus die, uh, so like each each player has a standard um, color, you know, red, green, blue, yellow. But you can also get bonus dice, uh, white or black. And you know, the rule is you can only have one color in a stack at a location. So if you play your regular die, you can play the bonus die there to go additionally. I thought that was, I thought that was a cool, uh, cool addition.
And that leads us to our next segment, Game of the Fortnite. The game that we think deserves to be recognized for at least the next two weeks. And uh, we, we figured we'd do a topical one this time around. Uh, I'm sure some other people have talked about this. Uh, we were going to talk about it, and it's offshoots. The game is Pandemic. And I know what you're thinking. This is only topical because it's currently in the Board Game Geek March Madness final round. But no, there's another reason we'll talk about it. There's a pandemic. <laughs> Was there actually a March Madness Board Game Geek thing? Yeah, and it's in the final round today. <laughs> but it's May. <laughs> it's, it goes so long. You think they give so it? At, at, by the time this releases, it's going to be over. So we need to say that at time of recording, this is in the March Madness. <laughs> Board Game Geek Mar- March Madness. So I know Pandemic is often a a gateway game for people. Uh, I didn't get to play it until about four or five years into board gaming, where I finally got my hands on a copy to play. How about you? For context, what, what is four to five years into board gaming for you? Like, what year would you say that is? Half. It was about halfway. I've been playing board games for about ten years. So about four or five years ago? Yeah. I might mean I've been playing it for you. That's possible. Yeah, so I I played it because one of my friends in college, he owned the board game, and it was I think it was one of our favorites. You know, we started in games like Catan and whatnot. I think one of the obvious transitions from the competitive game is, you know, there's not a lot of cooperative board games that I grew up playing, uh, and I think Pandemic was the first, you know, cooperative board game that I played where you're really stressing out the entire time. So I, I played it for the first time about five years ago. And I thought it was fine. It was a, it was a fun game. It was enjoyable. Yeah. But it didn't, it didn't blow me away right away. I somehow ended up with my... Um, I somehow ended my hands on a, getting my hands on a copy of it. So I owned it for quite some time. And I thought about trading it away. And it just sat on my shelf for quite some time. I played it every now and then with friends. But it was never it never got regular play until I started playing Pandemic Legacy. Uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 came out, and that got a lot of buzz. It shot up to number one on the Board Game Geek Top 100 list. And by then I started paying attention to it. I, I saw a bunch of good reviews about it. So I bought a copy, and I knew Ellen didn't like it that much. So I invited three friends uh, to play Pandemic Legacy with me. And we loved it. We had such a blast. Uh, enjoyed it so much that when Pandemic Legacy Season 2 came out, we started that campaign. But that didn't make it very far because the actual pandemic happened. So that that campaign is still ongoing. We're about halfway through Pandemic Legacy Season 2, so if anybody writes in, no spoilers, please. And then, right at the beginning of the pandemic, we started. I started hearing rumors about Pandemic Legacy season zero and i really wanted to try that one so i was like ellen i know you don't really like pandemic would you try this legacy version with me the gameplay is supposed to be different and ellen said i've never played pandemic i said what (laughs) (laughs) no you hate this game she's like no i've never played i don't know where you got that idea from (laughs) so 
I was Are like, you gaslighting yourself? <laughs> I, I did, I guess. <laughs> so I was like, well, how about we just play regular Pandemic then? I pulled it off the shelf. We sat down. We played it. And she loved it. She had a blast. And Evelyn is so good at Pandemic. She's so much better than I am. One of the, one of the things that I like about the base game, because I have not played any of the Legacy versions, one of the things I like about the base game is just the constant stress of where where is where in the world are things going to go wrong next, mm-hmm. and you have to have a plan of of what to do to get to the end goal to win the game. But the plan's always going to get interrupted by these random outbreaks. <laughs> And so you're just all running around the world and it's like, oh, it's probably best if we go over here and do such and such thing so we can get things. And as you're on the way to go to Tokyo, Japan, you know, you're, tra- you're traveling across Europe or whatever, uh, trying to meet up with someone who can fly you there or something like that. Then an outbreak happens in North Africa. Then everyone has to stop. <laughs> <laughs> everyone has to stop what they're doing and go to a different part but of North the Africa. Yeah, I just like that, you, you know, you're making a plan and then you just have to keep... <laughs> Editing the planet, you go from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D. But, you know, it's it's, it's fun uh, being at a table where people are like, "Oh, I've got this card in my hand, so we can try this." Or it's like, "Blah blah blah," and, you know. I got this ability w- with my character. Whenever, whenever we play the game, and if one one disease in pandemic isn't uh, that prevalent on the board, like not a lot of those re- those cards in that region have come up yet, so it's not yeah. populated with a lot of disease cubes. Uh, we always complain. We always like to. We always like to joke that that region is complaining about the sniffles. <laughs> we try and roleplay like this. This country's gotten a huge outbreak of malaria, and they had the sniffles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I think we have to give a lot of props to Pandemic because I'm pretty sure it was the first game that really proved cooperative games could be viable. It could be a, a, a viable type of gaming in our in our hobby. Does that does it predate uh, the Forbidden series? Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert. Well you know it's the same designer, right? Yeah. 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 Pandemic was before Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert. I okay. am saying that with a lot of confidence. <laughs> we have Google but we're not going to use it. <laughs> it's it, Pandemic is not the first cooperative game. Um, I believe there was a Reiner Knizia Lord of the Rings game that did fairly well. And then there was like no cooperative game for five or six years. And then Pandemic, Pandemic came out and showed that the formula works and it is fun. You, I know you mentioned that you haven't played any of the uh, Pandemic Legacy versions, but they have been some of my favorite gaming experiences. It's, it is largely in part due to the people that I play with, or mm-hmm. that I played with, because when we played through Pandemic Legacy Season 1, it was just the stories that we told to each other. A, a small rule would come up. And then we would weave that into the story to make it make thematic sense. Yeah. So, no spoilers. How do you like Session Zero so far? Oh, I love it. It's it's incredible. Um, it is. So I haven't played enough Pandemic Legacy Season Two to 
confirm this assertion, but the mechanics in Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, I'm just gonna from now on, I'm just gonna say Season Zero, Season One, Season Two. Season One plays almost exactly like Pandemic at first blush, and then they start adding a few a few new mechanics as the game progresses. Season Zero deviates quite a bit from the original Pandemic formula, but you can still see the same design ethos there. Uh And I really like it to the point where I think it's a different enough game from Pandemic that I have been researching variants to play after uh, after the campaign is over to keep it as a board game in my collection. Ooh. I know Rado was creating a variant and I watched the uh, how to play video the other night because like I said, I'm we're only one game away from finishing. Uh-huh. We have been doing incredibly well. We've only failed one month and that's a, that's another interesting aspect. And I guess this can lead right into our next segment. Which is uh, brother banter. And this week, this is Fortnite. We wanted to discuss legacy games. So what a flawless segue. The the biggest downfall of legacy games that most people complain about is that they are finite. You can only play them so many times. And I I, I can see where they're coming from. I think that's the draw of legacy games, though, is that they're finite. I think it's I the like, story behind it. I like that about legacy games, knowing that there will be a thematic and sometimes emotional conclusion to repeated plays. Yes. That you may or may not be able to capture again. And that's fine with me. In, in defense of legacy games, I think that's a draw that gets you back playing the game over and over again to a point where I've played certain legacy games more than non-legacy games that I own. Because they have that story element. They have that, that allure that brings you back. It keeps you thinking about them and wanting to play them over and over again. I have played, I think, six different Legacy games. And for the most part, I've really enjoyed them, and I don't see myself stopping. I've played all of the Pandemic Legacy seasons, and I've actually purchased Season 1 to play with Ellen again. So I will play that one a second time. Some people would argue that uh, I already know the story. What's the point? Well, I watch my favorite movies more than once. I read my favorite books more than once. I'm going to play my favorite legacy games more than once. Mm-hmm. I think I think it might work better in a cooperative legacy game as compared to a competitive legacy game. I haven't played that many competitive legacy games. The only one that actually comes to mind currently is Charterstone by Stonemaier Games. And that's a worker placement game where the worker placement mechanics were just fine. And the story mm. elements aren't, they aren't pervasive like they are in the Pandemic series. So we only played maybe four or five games in that, and we just, we called it quits. For competitive uh, legacy games that I have played, uh, I tried to get my college friends to play Risk Legacy with me uh, back in 2012. But <laughs> it was already hard enough for them to play a game of reg- regular Risk. I do. Uh, wanna, I was not commit to Risk Legacy. <laughs> I do want to give a shout out to Risk Legacy 
for creating the legacy genre. Did you know that was designed by Rob Davio? I did not know that was designed by that one person, but I do know that it was what gave, uh, it's, it's what made legacy games, legacy games. Well, Rob Davio is the father of legacy games. Where, exactly. So he designed Risk Legacy for Hasbro, and then eventually he found his way out of the uh, Hasborg machine and uh, was able to work with Matt Leacock, and he's a co-designer for Pandemic Legacy. Oh, nice. Nice. So yeah, I, I'd actually like to uh, revisit Risk Legacy. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it might have some very swingy things, you know, things that have been ironed out in future Legacy games. Um, but in terms of competitive ones, I have played King's Dilemma. I played Clank Legacy. And I, and I would count the Rise of Fenris campaign as a Legacy game because... Uh, you know, it changes over time and, you know, it's competitive and you unlock things and and you get these powers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to be said about the similarities between a uh, legacy game and a campaign based game. Yeah, and so uh, I would count Rise of Finrest. Whenever it comes to competitive legacy games, my big point for design that I think is good design is... The way to win could not be obvious, but, you know, the kinds of mechanics, the kinds of things, and the small intermediate goals should lead up to ultimate victory. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my complaints with King's Dilemma is I often was a person who had their house succeed the throne in King's Dilemma. You know, it's, it's a game played over multiple generations. You have kings come to power and fall and they're from different families and all this kind of stuff and they're playing the political faction and all that and i my house would manage to get their family up onto the throne multiple times but at the end of the game that didn't matter and i didn't realize that i was not putting myself in a good position for the end game mm. i found that frustrating that i get i do all these things where thematically it's about you know it's not just about putting your family on the throne, though. That's one of the things you can do. But ultimately, that just doesn't... It's not important. What is, so, the, what is the story driven through it? Uh, so the story driven through it is you are different houses. And you, you are different houses in this land. And different events are happening in the kingdom. And you are spending influence to try to make sure a certain thing happens based on the event to move certain things around. Like, oh, you want to increase uh, the food supply, or, oh, you want to increase the strength of the kingdom. You have your own personal secret goal for each generation, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of each generation, you get you determine uh, whose family puts them in the best position to get the king onto the throne. It doesn't really end up mattering, uh, not to spoil how the end of the work, uh, the end works, but the end game mechanics are so different from the regular game that even though I felt like I was doing well, it didn't it didn't matter. But on the other hand, Clank Legacy, complete opposite. The small little goals and the small little things that you got over the course of each game ended up mattering, and so like you have the winner of each game. You have the people who, you have the people 
who complete these specific objectives and all these kinds of things end up mattering for the final game scoring. And so it, the winner of our legacy game for Clank Legacy felt like they were actually the winner based on all the things that they have done over the course of our 11 plays. I guess, I guess I've mostly played just cooperative, uh, cooperative legacy games. So I've played the pandemics, I've played Gloomhaven and the only one I've dropped has been Charterstone, which I didn't drop because it was competitive. I dropped because the story element wasn't keeping us atten- our attention there and neither was the, the mechanics. Yeah. If the story is strong enough, I'm there for the whole ride. I mean, I'm playing Gloomhaven and I have no idea what the hell's happening in that story. <laughs> I guess it helps that each little Gloomhaven encounter can be its own story. <laughs> yeah. We do we do, do dramatic readings for each mission. <laughs> I just don't remember what the hell's happening. <laughs> so I, I did talk about how... I was talking about how, oh man, I'm there for the story. When we play Gloomhaven online every week, the last person who enters the dungeon, we always give them shit. Like, oh, they love the story. <laughs> <laughs> we race, we race to get into the dungeon fastest to just fight. But in our defense, the campaign actually hasn't been released on the on the Steam version of Blue. Oh, no. We're just playing through whatever side missions they have, so we don't care about that story. Nice. I mean, I, I like that the Gloomhaven world is not just elves, dwarves, and whatnot. They created unique races. <laughs> I love that joke in uh, No Pun Included video about Gloomhaven. Oh, we love, that it's not, we love that it's not your stereotypical fantasy races like elves and dwarves and Italians. <laughs> <laughs> classic, classic comedy. <laughs> yeah. So that lull in the conversation and that silence in our hearts means it's time for another board gaming missed connection. And this one comes out when I was on a date. And this date landed on a very special day. It was my birthday, which also happens to coincide with Valentine's Day. And I was taking Ellen out for a very fancy meal at a very nice French restaurant. We were sat, dimly lit room, candle lit. Romance was in the air. And the, uh, the two guys next to us were on a date. And they started talking about Settlers of Catan. And Valentine's Day at a nice restaurant is not the time to interrupt somebody else's date to tell them, I could be your guys' best friends. (laughs) As soon as they said, they started talking about Catan, my eyes lit up and Ellen gave me a little, don't do it. (laughs) How long are you dating at this time? Do what? How long had you guys been dating at this time? I think this was a year or two into our marriage. Um, <laughs> so, so Ellen and I were married already. I was at that point. You can do anything. At that, <laughs> that point, she's trapped. <laughs> so I desperately wanted to lean over and make new friends, but I didn't. I let them enjoy their date, and I enjoyed mine. But it just led to another board gaming missed connection. Hey, Michael, what time is it? It is, I'm not singing the song, uh, but it is, our lawyers tell us that (laughs) we cannot sing the song. Nah, that's, I'm I'm kidding. We don't have lawyers. (laughs) Don't sue us. (laughs) Don't sue us. (laughs) 
this next section is mail time. What question do we have for our list from our listeners this fortnight? Well, this podcast question comes from a very special listener, Ellen, my wife. My wife. Oh. <laughs> I know it's a really crappy Borat impersonation, but Ellen does that too. She always goes, my way. <laughs> Neither of us have seen that movie. And the question Ellen asks is, what is a great board game that you don't recommend to other players? I'll go first on this one. I'm only going to say this because none of my friends are this kind of board gamer. But I'm going to say Food Chain Mag. You could be out of the game before the first turn, just in setup where you're choosing your place to put your starting position. Yeah. I understand that's where a lot of uh, splatter games are like. And I think uh, Food Chain Magnet is no exception, because that's a splatter game, correct? Yeah, that's that's a splatter game. And basically, uh, I think it's a good game, but I wouldn't recommend it to anyone just because I don't think my circle of board gaming people would enjoy that type of game. Well, if you want to win that game, you should uh, teach it to me because that's in the top 100. That's one of the ones I need to play. And that's, uh, I'll that, teach it to you. That's up there. That's one of the harder ones that I'm going to have to play. I've been looking at it. it. I was about to say it looks fun. It sounds fun. It looks real ugly. Yeah. Uh, I. <laughs> so, Food Chain Magnet is about starting up these restaurants finding out what the customer needs are, or creating the need through advertisement, and then satisfying that need by, you know, shipping or making a sale of whatever the customer wants. In the entire game, I made one sale. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, one sale in the entire game. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> What'd you sell? <laughs> like a purple soda or something like that. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Would you play it again? I would play it again. I would play it again under a circumstance where I knew I was going to be playing it ahead of time. I had time to watch the rules thoroughly and maybe read a couple pointers on how to play. That's a good but option. But I can't necessarily I can't necessarily ask other people to do the same when recommending that game. How long does it last? Uh it's probably about 2 or 3 hours. Okay. If you're playing with decisive people. Yeah. What about you? So a great game that I really like that I wouldn't recommend is Fort by Leader Games. It is fun. It is adorable. The artwork is very good. It doesn't play that long. It takes a, It doesn't take up too much table space. But some rules in there are fiddly as hell. There are so many nitpicky rules trying to prop up the core mechanics that you can see the scaffolding around this game each time you play. And every time there's just a few questions that we have, like, all right, how does this, how does this work exactly? Can I, can, can I do it this way? And I'm not sure we've actually played it 100% correct, but uh, Leader Games doesn't provide the best rule books in their games, so it's a little bit difficult to tell. Do you think this is one of those where they created the game and then they added all these things on and playtesting kind of thing to make it as situations arose kind of thing? Um, I don't think so. This is based off of... So I believe Fort is based off of a an older game called Glory to Rome. 
where each mm. card has multiple uh, mm-hmm. multiple uses, and it's kind of like that where you're you can use it you can use a card to power up your action that you play, or you can use a card to jump off of other people's actions. And the game itself is a lot of fun, but if you're not familiar with with a lot of board game mechanics, I would never recommend it. It's two to four players plays in about thirty minutes, and it's lightweight enough that it could be a gateway game. But those rules restrict uh, those rules confusions make it so I would never recommend it to a new player. It would have to be a lighter game for experienced players, and that's how I feel about Fort. I still want to play it though. Well, we know it's sad, but time has come to an end. It's time to say goodbye. And the two people that I would like to say goodbye to the most are the Brothers Murph, as we pass them on our way to become the most famous brothers in board gaming. You're on, brothers. (laughs) It is podcast four, and the Brothers Murph have still not responded to our smack talk. Come on, man. Where are you at? I think they're in California. Oh, that's kind of far. That's very far for you. (laughs) If you would like to ask us any questions or also talk smack about the Brothers Murph, please email us at boardgamefamous at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Bye.